Let's begin with a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we do want to see how great you are, and we want to see how great the Son is. We want to see how great Jesus is. We want to see and savor the glory of Jesus Christ, and and Lord, by doing so, we want to see our lives transformed by his beauty, by his glory. We want to see every aspect of our life, the way we treat our spouse, the way we parent our children, the way we run a business, the way we talk to our friends, the things we watch, everything. We want it to be conformed to the image of Christ. And it can't be, Father, unless we see the image of Christ, unless we see the glory of Jesus. So we ask, Father, that you would do a work in our heart this morning through your word. We praise you for your word. It is truth. There is no spot of error in it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to John chapter 3, if you would. We're going to continue in our series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. John chapter 3. So as you're turning there, you know, this week was um, obviously Valentine's Day week. Whatever, Valentine's week. So you probably had, you know, little things for your loved ones. And um, now I see some men looking at, at me. This, don't judge me. This wasn't for my wife, all right? This was for one of my little girls, okay? And I had to buy lots of them. So my wife got something much more substantial than this. Don't, don't you sit in judgment on me. But we, we gave things to, the, to our loved ones. We, we shared with them how much we appreciated them, how much we loved them. And, and we enjoy those whom we love. Matter of fact, this past week, or I guess it was just a little bit before Valentine's Day, Chick-fil-A has their daddy-daughter date night. I don't know if you are familiar with that or not. It's a good little thing that, that Chick-fil-A does. And so took uh, Olivia and, and Emma Kate on a daddy-daughter date night. And, and Emma Kate had a specific request. She told Heather that she wanted daddy to look like a prince. She wanted him to look like a prince like he does when he does weddings. So I got into my best princely attire and we went and had our daddy-daughter date night. But, but there was a kind of a heavy weight on me as I think about that, and it should be on every dad, and that is the scary truth, men, is that our girls will want to marry men like us. They will. So you have a heavy burden on you, men, that your little girls are going to look to you, and they're going to look for a man like you. And I think every father will agree with me. When that young man finally comes, when that young man comes who one day will be seeking one of my daughter's hands, I want to know a few things. Where is he from? Okay, what's his background? Uh, how does he treat you? How does he talk to you? How does he talk to my wife and I? How does he speak? Does he speak honoring words? What's he like? Who is he really? What's his outlook? What's his potential? Can he be the husband that my little girl needs? Any man who wants to be my daughter's groom, well, then he's going to have to be a very special man. A prince, if you will. So I think a Valentine's Day illustration and, and thinking about uh, these things is, is sort of appropriate today as we continue to look at John chapter 3. Because in John the Baptist's speech to his disciples that we began last week in John 3, in that speech he calls Jesus the bridegroom. And Jesus' followers are the bride. And in doing so, he's trying to get his disciples to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus. He's trying to get them to see and savor Jesus Christ. You remember they were jealous. They were frustrated. 
They didn't like that their ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, was fading away and Jesus' ministry was, was fading in. It was, it was coming into prominence. But John reminds his disciples that, that he was just the friend of the bridegroom and that the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, had arrived and that he, simply as the best man, if you will, he was ready to fade into the background. Here's what he said in verse 29. He said, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And that's John the Baptist's desire. So as we continue to look at John today, we need to have that in mind. His desire is for Jesus to increase in these following verses and for himself to decrease. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is portrayed as a bridegroom and his people are the bride. Ephesians 5, the famous passage on husbands loving their wives and wives loving their husbands. That that famous passage is really all about, and Paul says so, he says it's all about a picture, a parable, a living parable, if you will, of, of, of Christ's relationship with his church. So it's a beautiful picture that Christ is the bridegroom And we are the bride. So John the Baptist now, in the rest of these verses, is continuing to speak. I believe he's continuing to speak. Your ESV may have the quotation marks end at the end of verse 31. And that that means that the the people who translated the ESV believe that this is now John the Apostle's commentary on what John the Baptist just said. I personally believe this is John the Baptist still speaking. He's still speaking to his, his disciples, trying to convince them to follow Jesus and not him. So it doesn't matter either way, it's still the Word of God. It's absolutely true, whether it's John the Apostle's commentary or John the Baptist's words. So please stand if you would. We're going to read John 3, verse 31. And we're going to end at the very end of this chapter, verse 36. This is the Word of God. Like I said, it doesn't matter if it's John the Apostle or John the Baptist. This is the Word of Christ spoken through them, inspired by His Spirit. Here we go. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you bless this reading of the Word. We pray now that you would enable me to speak clearly and accurately, keep my mouth from error. Lord, I pray that you would enable ears to hear accurately, keep us from hearing what we want to hear. Help us to hear the true words of Christ, the words of the Father uttered through the mouth of Christ, inspired by His Spirit, written down for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I would have several questions for a young man if he were to come and be interested in either one of my daughters. Well, John the Baptist is going to answer some questions this morning about Jesus, about the bridegroom. He's going to answer some questions for us, like where he's from. John wants us to see some glorious things about the bridegroom. So this morning, your first point is simply this. 
Jesus, our bridegroom, is from a better place. Okay, is from a better place, for he is from God. Jesus, our bridegroom, is from a better place. For he is from God. Remember, the reason I'm wording it that way, he's from a better place. As John the Baptist is comparing himself to the bridegroom. He says, listen, you need to know about this Jesus, where he's from. He is from a better place because he comes from above. He comes from heaven. He is from God. Now, we use the word heavenly all the time to describe a lot of things. We may eat a dish that someone's created, some food, a fellowship meal next week. Oh, my goodness, that's heavenly. Okay, We may get a good back rub. Oh, that's heavenly. Whatever it might be. We ascribe the word heavenly to a lot of different things. But there's really only been one truly heavenly man who was ever sent to mankind, who ever lived. And that's Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Jesus came from heaven. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. And later in that verse, he who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus is unique, special, Set apart, for he's the only man to have come from heaven. He is from above, yet he came to man. He came to men as a man. He is therefore fully God, and he is fully man. Jesus is 100% human, yet 100% God. Now, most people in the world today believe that Jesus is 100% human. They don't have any problem with that. But they say he was only a good man or merely a great man. But John the Baptist says he's the God man. He's utterly unique among men with a human and divine nature. He is special. He is different. And John points that out. He wants to see that all other men, every other person who's ever walked the face of the earth, all other men are of the earth and belong to the earth. That phrase in verse 31, of the earth, And belonging to the earth, it literally reads, He who is of the earth is earth. He who is of the earth is earth. We're but dust formed from what was created of the earth. Earthly in our thinking, earthly in our speaking, and we return to the earth when we die. But Jesus, the God-man, was heavenly in origin, conceived of the Holy Spirit in a virgin's womb. He was put in the earth, but when he died, the earth did not consume him. It was unable to keep him, so he rose again. He is not of the earth. He is unique. Our bridegroom is the God-man. John 1, 1. If you just scoot back a little bit, rewind a little bit here. In the Gospel of John, we read, In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. From God, from heaven, from above, yet in tremendous love, he came. It continues in John, John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is what John wants his disciples to see. This is what John the Baptist wants us to see as we read it this morning. Do you see the glory of the Son who came? Who came? Do you see the glory of the bridegroom? Fix your mind on the fact that he came. He came to us. God condescended to come to mankind, to be a man, to identify with sinners, to be like us in every respect, yet without sin. He came. What undeserved love when we think about the fact that he came. He didn't have to come, but he came. This is the great difference between Christianity and all other world religions. The great difference is this. All other world religions and worldviews 
attempt to help man come to God, get to God, find God, or make oneself God. Only true biblical Christianity, and by the way, not all Christianity is true biblical Christianity. Only true biblical Christianity is different in that it's all about God coming to us. He came. We didn't seek God. He sought us. He came. That's the glory of the gospel. Because of his great love for us, he came, and he came because he was sent. Verse 34 refers to Jesus as the one whom God has sent. The Son came, and the Father sent. And thus the coming of the Son was also a mission. A mission given to him by the Father to seek and to save sinners, to elect for himself a bride. Thus God's love is on full display in the coming of the Son. The Son loving us and coming because, of the, because the Father loved us and sent his Son. 1 John 4.19, the Apostle John later on in an epistle would write these words. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. The bridegroom came, the bridegroom was sent to show mercy upon sinners and out of this mass of sinful humanity find his bride. May he increase. Let's see the glory of the bridegroom this morning. Let's see and savor his coming this morning. So where is he from? He's from above. From heaven. Yet he came as a bridegroom. The other thing John wants his disciples to see and that, that he wants us to see this morning is that this bridegroom is special because of some other reasons. Jesus, our bridegroom, speaks a better word for his speech is from God. So not only is Jesus the bridegroom from a much better place than John the Baptist or any man who's ever lived, he's from a better place for he is from God, but he also speaks a better word for his speech is from God. The verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Jesus, because he is from above, is a witness to the mysteries of heaven. And he came bearing witness to what he had seen and what he had heard. His word, therefore, his testimony is authoritative. We are to listen to every word that proceeds from his mouth. For as the God-man come from heaven, he is heaven's witness to us. This means that he has knowledge, he has perfect knowledge, and he is imparting that knowledge to us. He is a witness. Now this is a legal term that John uses here. It's, he is a witness. Every witness is evaluated before he's called to the stand. To see if he's reliable, to see if he's truthful, to see if he exactly really did hear or see what he says he heard or saw. And so this is a, a legal term used here. And not only is Jesus a witness who has seen, but he's also heard. And so this is a very reliable, credible witness. John says Jesus' word is more than credible. By nature of who he is, it's undeniable. If you want someone to speak spiritual truth to you, who would you have it be? John draws a contrast between Jesus and mere men who speak in an earthly way. Mere men speak in an earthly way, but Jesus, who has come from heaven, has a heavenly word of testimony for his people. It is the word of God. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, the very words of God. And Jesus' word is, is not, his words are not just the, the red letters in your, in your Bible here. If you have a red letter Bible, 
I used to love a red-letter Bible, but now I kind of don't like a red-letter Bible anymore because I think it's drawing an unnecessary distinction. It's good to see what words Jesus directly spoke, but it doesn't mean the red letters are more authoritative than any of the other letters in this book. It's all absolutely authoritative. It's all Jesus' word spoken to us, inspired by the Spirit upon men who wrote down what Jesus had to say. He utters the words of God. It's all his word, it's all from him, it's all through him, and it's all to him. It all speaks of him. So Christian, this is the testimony, this is the witness, these are the words of life, these are the words of God. My question for you this morning is, what are you listening to, Christian? What are you you listening to? What words are you consulting? Are you flirting with earthly ways of speaking? Are you listening to men's imaginative speculations about life and about God? Are you listening to men's dreams? Are you looking for signs to speak to you? Are you searching for feelings deep inside? Or even a new revelation? Or are you pitting all of your hope, all of your reliance upon the word that was spoken? Where are you, Christian? If you were to ask me some life question and you got some challenge in your life and if I were to tell you why don't you go consult the book of mormon you'd think I've lost my mind and rightly so or if I said why don't you go consult the quran same thing those are extra biblical texts they are not the word of god and you agree yes okay we would never expect you to do that pastor but many do the exact same thing now that may sound ridiculous to you but many do the exact Same thing when they think God speaks to them through signs. Or when they think God speaks to them through feelings. Or popes. Or dreams. Or anything that God's revealed to our heart. Or I dare say, at the danger of offending some in here, a still small voice. Be careful, Christian. What more can he say than he's already said? Right here. Be careful, Christian. You wouldn't go consult the Quran. You wouldn't go consult the Book of Mormon. But you'll consult your own feelings about the situation above the Word of God. That is a dangerous place to be. That is a dangerous situation to find yourself in. Hebrews 1, 1. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, this verse was just read to you a minute ago, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by what? His Son. He has spoken to us by his son. When you trust this word as sufficient for everything, you are saying that you believe God is true. You are saying that you believe that his word is true. Verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. When you consult other things outside of scripture, including your feelings, and you don't go to the word of God, you're saying, God, I don't think you're true. I think this is true. And so 1 John 5.10 says, whoever does not believe God has believed God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. My friends, when we go to other places in this book right here, guess what? You are looking in God's face and telling him you believe he is a liar. You believe he's a liar. Because 
these other means of discerning God's will or whatever else it might be, you've decided to go to over the word. Whoever receives the testimony sets his seal on this, that God is true. Whoever does not believe the testimony has called God a liar. When you trust this word as sufficient for everything, you are saying that you believe God is true. Friends, if we truly see and savor Christ, then we will truly see and savor his word. If we truly see and savor Christ, we will see and savor his word. We will see his word as sufficient. I quoted it a little bit of it a minute ago. The, the old hymn, How Firm a Foundation, says this. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. If you see and savor the bridegroom, you will trust fully and solely in the bridegroom's word. What a word. What a bridegroom. Where is he from? Well, he's heavenly. He's from above. He's sent by God. Well, what does he say? What What does he speak? Well, he speaks the truth. He's heavenly, thus he speaks heavenly truths, the very words of God. But who is he? What's his outlook? Well, finally, John wants his disciples to see that the bridegroom is, thirdly, that this bridegroom has a better rank. For he is the supreme heir of God. He has a better rank for he is the the supreme heir of God. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who comes from heaven is above all. Above all. He's unparalleled, incomparable, superior in all respects. The creator and sustainer of the universe. Our bridegroom, friends, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. Our bridegroom, friends, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Praise God. Friends, our bridegroom was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. My friends, this is our bridegroom. This is our bridegroom. Our bridegroom, as Paul would say in Romans 9, 5, is God overall blessed forever. He's the bridegroom. Above all. That means he is above all even in respect to his own affections. This means that he must also make sure that he remains above all. I'm going to try to explain that a little bit here. His ultimate aim, Jesus' ultimate aim is the magnification of his own glory and the spread of his own fame over the face of the earth. That's his ultimate goal. But, but we live in a culture that, that wants to believe that Jesus' ultimate goal is to make much of us. Uh-uh. His ultimate goal is to make much of himself. And the more we see that and follow in step and do that, 
the more we receive the love of Christ. Because the most loving thing he can do is to cause us to worship him more rightly. It's the most loving thing God can do for us. There's a song, a pretty well-known, I don't know the title of it, Christian worship song. You'll probably recognize the tune when I say the words here. Crucified, laid behind the stone, you live to die, rejected and alone. Like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. That's a bad song. That's a bad song. John says, he is above all. When Jesus went to the cross, did he think of you? Yes. But above all, he thought of his Father's glory and his glory for the joy set before him. He endured the suffering of the cross. He thought of the glory of his own name and the fame of his name spreading out over the oceans through this act that he was enduring for the sake of the elect. It's not, it's not some 1800s romance, Jane Austen type thing where Jesus is on the cross. Oh, Richie, above all. You're right. Lord, help us. If that's the type of Christianity that we're preaching today, that God loves you above all, then my friends, we have just turned the church into a mass of idolaters. Because there's only one who is above all, and to put anything above him is to put an idol in the place of Christ. He is above all. Above all, he thought of his own glory and the glory of his Father. Does Jesus love humanity? Yes. And he especially loves his bride. But more than anything, he loves his own glory. He is above all and he wants the whole world to know it. And this is not selfishness on his part. For he is the supreme good of the universe. And to elevate anything above himself would be to tell you a lie. So he has to make much of himself. He is the only being for whom this wouldn't be selfishness. Thus, if the bridegroom were to magnify anything or anyone above himself, including the bride, he would become an idolater, and on top of that, he would be denying the bride the very best thing that we could receive. Namely, the manifestation of his own glory. I want the best from God. And the best from God isn't warm, touchy-feely. The best that God can give me is to show me how glorious he is. As Moses stood behind the cleft of the rock, he didn't say, God, make me feel good about this. I've been up here 40 days. He said, God, show me your glory. That's what he wanted to see. And he knew because God told him, if I show you my glory, you're gone, buddy. So I'm going to put you behind a rock and just show you a little bit of myself. The greatest good, the greatest desire of our heart should be to see Christ glorified. That's the best good that Jesus can give us is the full manifestation of himself. The greatest thing Jesus can do for us is to point us to himself, magnify himself above all. And it should be our great joy to see him glorified above all. So his own glory has to be his prime aim. Listen to our bridegroom's prayer. This is Jesus' prayer for us. Listen to our bridegroom's prayer, John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see 
my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Man is to be radically God-centered because God is radically God-centered. Again, it's not selfishness for God to magnify himself. It's the best good he can do for us. And if he were to put us above himself, he would be doing us great harm. So that song is a song speaking about idolatry. Be careful what we sing in the church, friends. Be careful. Think. Use your brains, not just your emotions, when you sing. Use your emotions, too. Your affections should be stirred up toward the glory of Christ. But think, church. It would be our great joy, it is our great joy, to be able to say what John said. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. My friends, you don't go to the Grand Canyon to make much of yourself. You don't go to the Niagara Falls to boost your self-esteem. You go to get caught up in the majesty and the glory of something much bigger than yourself. How much more should we come to Christ in order to be engulfed by his glory? Let us see and savor Christ. The sun glorified above all. In verses 34 through 35, boy, we get this little peak. (laughs) We get this little peak of the majestic and mysterious and utterly mystifying glory of the Trinity. This is one of those triune passages where you see the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit all at work. Let's follow John's logic a little bit here, okay? We've been told to accept the testimony of Jesus, right? As we've already mentioned. And then verse 34 says, For... So this is the ground. Why? Why should you accept the testimony of Jesus? Why? Because for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Okay, we've talked about that. We've already got that down. But then there's another conjunction. There's another word for. For, now we have the basis for which Jesus utters the words of God. For he, and that's referring to God the Father, he gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus speaks the words of God because God the Father has given the Spirit to the Son without measure. And this, we have this little peak of this inter-Trinitarian participation in one another. And we see that it's an act of immeasurable love. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now my friends, I don't have time this morning. I hardly have time to finish this message. Much less dig much deeper into that right there. The, the glorious mystery of the Trinity. But we see here this, this mutual inter-Trinitarian participation in one another. Unlike the mere men of the earth, Christ Jesus, the second person in the Godhead, is always being given. The verb gives here, when it talks about he gives the Spirit without measure, is in the present tense. And it's, and it's, a, it's a continuing action. He gives, the Father is always giving the Spirit to the Son. So God is giving the second person in the Godhead, the Father is giving the Son, the third person in the Godhead, in an in a immeasurable, infinite way. This is the mysterious love within the Godhead. God giving himself the greatest good in the universe, namely himself. The Father giving the Son the Spirit. We men of earth who are part of the bride, if you are part of the bride here this morning, are each given a measure a manifestation of the Spirit. But the bridegroom is unique. He has limitless 
infinite measure of the Spirit always being given to him over and over and over and over and over increase because he's one with the Spirit. This is the glorious unity within the Godhead. And that's why he perfectly speaks the words of God. There's no division between God the Father and God the Son where Jesus is having to guess. I wonder if this is really what the Father wants me to say. No. What you have here, there is no error in Jesus' words. Because he has a perfect union with the Father. Now my son, I may say, hey Noah, go tell your mother something. And then she comes back and says, why did you say Noah to say that? I didn't say it to him to say that. I told him to say something else. He got the message wrong. It never happens in my home. Occasionally. He got the me- That doesn't happen within the Godhead. The message is never wrong. Because the Father has given the full measure of the Spirit to the Son. And the Son, and he has full love for the Son. And so we have this inter-Trinitarian sharing and union that can't be broken. I'm sure John the Baptist's disciples, maybe like some of you out there right now, are scratching their head going, huh? Because it's just so amazing. And it's so mysterious. So we're looking in here on this passage, getting a peek of the, of, the, of the love within the Godhead. And it's absolutely amazing. Have you ever felt like a third wheel? Okay, how many of you guys have, you know, when you were in college, brother, you got your best bud all of a sudden starts dating some girl or something. And, and they want you to hang out with them. You're just like, oh, man. And you're, so you're just like the third wheel all the time. And they're, you're like, oh, gosh, can I really listen to this, you know. And you're just this third wheel. And you hate looking in on that. Oh, that's nauseating. But in this case, maybe a fourth wheel is a better word for it. We love to look in and see the love within the Godhead. It should astound us to see the fellowship and the love within the Trinity. And and God gives us peaks like this passage here. So that we'll be stirred up with love and we'll be stirred up with excitement and joy Again, the greatest thing he can do for us is to magnify himself. Jesus has been given all things. He is therefore the supreme heir of God. He holds it all in his hand. To have something in your hand means you rule over it. You reign over it. The bridegroom is also, okay, because he's the heir of the father, he's also a prince. But he's more than a prince. He's the sovereign over the entire universe. He is the prince of peace, but he's also the king of kings. Our earthly language is too limited to describe his exalted position as head over all things. We don't have enough words to describe. Romans eleven thirty six. 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things, all things. To him be glory forever. Yes, may he increase, may we decrease. He is the ruler and heir of all things. This world and the bride is therefore his inheritance. Tony read a passage earlier from Hebrews 1. I'm going to read it again. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification of sin, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So yes, may the bridegroom increase. But my question for you this morning is, do you believe these words? 
Do you believe what John has said? Do you accept Jesus' testimony? Do you see him as above all, including above yourself? To the one who will not believe in this room, let me be as clear as I can be. To the one who will not believe, he did come and he has spoken. He did not have to. He chose to condescend, to come to undeserved sinners and to save for himself a people, a bride. He came to redeem a bride. Why? Why did he choose to come and redeem a bride? Because before he came, the bride was a whore. Without Christ, the bride, forgive my language, I'm using biblical language, the bride was a whore, prostitute. For all men, all men have prostituted themselves with false gods, seeking vain things, exchanging the glory of God for images resembling earthly things. All men have committed treason against God by their sin. All men, and thus all men are duly under the penalty of death, already dead in their sins and enslaved to the kingdom of darkness. And that is why the bridegroom came, according to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being humbled, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Death on a cross, taking the wrath of God against sin. On behalf of his bride, the judgment that the prostitute deserved for her unfaithfulness, Jesus, the bridegroom, took upon himself. And upon doing so, he also gave his righteousness, the pure white bridal gown of his righteousness he gave to that prostitute and thus transformed her, made her new, and made her his bride. That's the beauty of the cross. And when he rose again, he secured for her eternal life. That's what the Son accomplished, and that's why God has sent him, and that's why he is above all things. Paul continues in his word to the Philippians. You want to see how God exalts the Son? Verse 9 of Philippians 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every, 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 every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every, every, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Every single human being who's ever lived will bow their knee and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Some will do it as the bride, others will do it in disgust and be sent to an eternal damnation. It's that simple. It's that simple. This is the testimony of Christ Jesus this morning to you friends. Yet according to verse 32, according to verse 32, no one receives his testimony. No one. And I take these words at face value. No one accepts his testimony. No one in and of themselves can receive the testimony of God. All men, all men reject it. Yet the next verse says, in verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Wait a second here. Has poor John the Baptist been out in the desert heat a little too long? Is he a little schizophrenic here? He's saying no one receives, yet those who do receive. No, I don't think John's contradicting himself. I think John's just continuing with the same theme we've had all throughout chapter 3 of John, which is, No one comes to the Father unless the Father does a regenerating work in their heart. 
No one. All men, by their own nature, reject the gospel, reject Jesus. And so, our hope and our prayer is that God will come and regenerate hearts, turn hearts toward him, make people born again. Jesus said earlier, this gives us a little bit of a clue here. Jesus said earlier in John 3, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. What does that remind you of? Verse 31, he who is of the earth is of the earth, right? But Jesus goes on, but that which is born of spirit is spirit. Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus taught us that no one comes to God unless he is first born again, born of the Spirit. So yes, no one receives his testimony, not earthly men at least, but God in his sovereign mercy and grace has by his Spirit breathed new life into dead hearts. And when that happens, sinners who previously would not receive Jesus' words do receive them. They're born again and they set their seal to this, that God is true. Their belief is sealed. And God gets all the glory in salvation. But on our side of the equation, all men are called to repent and believe. Repent and believe. Verse 36. We'll end with this verse, and it's a heavy verse. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever believes in the Son, believes that he is the God-man, from heaven, uttering the very words of God, and that he's supreme above all things. Whoever believes has, not will have, has eternal life. Has, present tense, eternal life has begun, and he now walks in a new way. He lives with newness of life. The old has passed, and the new has come. Eternal life begins the moment one believes, and everything about that person then changes. But, whoever does not obey the Son... Shall not see life. You want to look at this verse and say, wait a second. John, didn't you mean whoever does not believe the Son? Because earlier you said, whoever believes has life, but whoever... There's no mistakes in God's Word. Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life. John is making a huge parallel here. Belief is paralleled with obedience. In other words, to believe in the Son is to obey the Son. And to not obey the Son is to not believe the Son. This verse should put the Lordship Salvation debate to bed. It should end it right here. It should totally knock out the idea. If there's anyone in here that believes that somehow you can trust Jesus as your Savior but not your Lord, that is satanic and in direct contradiction to the Word of God in this very verse. Whoever believes sees life. Whoever does not obey, your obedience is tied to your belief. There is no such thing as a Christian who's accepted Jesus as a Savior but goes on living like the rest of the world. It does not exist. That person is either self-deceived or in terrible misery because the Spirit of God won't be grieved like that. And God will bring that person back if they truly are a believer to obedience and repentance. There's no such thing as someone believing in Christ who does not actively and increasingly obey Christ. Jesus cannot be your Savior but not your Lord. This is a false Christianity and it saves no one. For the one who does not obey shall not see life. And the scriptures say the wrath 
of God remains on him. It remains. Do you see? All men are already under the wrath of God. Jesus said the same thing in John 3, 18. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Condemned already. You may be sitting in here this morning and say, Well, Steve, you're preaching an awful condemning word today. No. I don't have to say a word for condemnation to be already be there. It's there. You're condemned already if you've not believed on the Son. The wrath of God remains on you. My friends, you do need to be saved from your sins, but more importantly, you need to be saved from God. You need to be saved from a just judge who will not overlook sin. And in his holiness, he demands justice and he has hot anger against sin and the sinner. For God to not be angry with sin and with sinners would mean that he's no longer a holy God and he's not a God worth worshiping. But he is a God who hates sin. Psalm 7, 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. That's the word of the Lord. Believe me, I would love, because of my flesh, because of my desire to please people, one of my sinful habits, to skip a verse like John 3.36. But if I were to do that, I would be in derelict of duty. Number one, I should be removed from this pulpit if I had to skip over the word of God. And secondly, I would be a hateful person toward you. If you're a sinner out there lost. If I don't tell you the bad news that you're under wrath, the good news makes no sense. Unbeliever, you need to be saved from the wrath of God. It's plain and simple. And if you have fooled yourself into thinking that you can claim Christ but live like the world, listen to the warning of John 3.36 and repent and believe Believe by putting all of your hope, all of your weight, all of your faith in Christ alone to save you. In Christ alone, in this beautiful bridegroom. Oh, may God open your eyes to see the bridegroom. He is magnificent. He is unique. He is very special. He's better than a prince. He's a better prince, I should say, and a better groom than I could ever have desired for my little girls. And I do hope that they marry a godly man, but above all, My hope for my children, all my children, is that they will put their hope and faith squarely in Jesus Christ alone. The heavenly man, the bridegroom, the Lord and Savior above all, Jesus Christ. That's my hope for my little girls. So dads, you want to be a good dad? Preach the gospel to your girls. And obey. Oh, may God open blind eyes this morning and soften hard hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come now, we want to close this time of worship and this service. Lord, I, I beg you, Father, to strike any words that came out of my mouth that were foolish and not in line with your word, that no one would leave here remembering those. But the words that were spoken rightly and in line with the word, the words that were spoken truly, my prayer and my desire is that they would penetrate hearts And for those in here who are already part of the bride, who are Christians, Lord, may it stir us up with a zeal, a zeal for the glory of Christ to be above our own glory, 
For us to be like John the Baptist, wanting to see Jesus increase all the time and ourselves decrease in our workplace. We want people to see Jesus more than they see us. In our marriage, in our parenting, whatever it might be. And Lord, my prayer is for those in here, and I know that in the room this size there are some in here who are either living under self-delusion or an outright rebellion. Lord, I pray that the harsh words of John the Baptist, and they are harsh, but they have a life-giving harshness to them, that they would penetrate the heart and that we would see the Holy Spirit move and that hard hearts would become hearts of flesh as the families of Harbin's learned this week, that hard hearts would become hearts of flesh, soft hearts willing to bend the knee and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And that's our prayer this morning. Jesus, be glorified. Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I can't even come close to describing your beauty. And I know I'm so inadequate. I'm sorry. So we need your spirit. Fill us with the knowledge of yourself. And think of yourself, Jesus, please. Think of yourself above all, because that's what we want to see. We want to see you above all. And so it's in your name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.